0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is the multi-talented Elise Lunan, the former chief content officer at Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow's right-hand woman, until she went on her own to pursue her own creative projects. Elise has co-written 12 books and is currently working on her first solo book. She's also started her own podcast called Pulling the Thread where she ponders some of life's biggest questions with experts in medicine, philosophy, anthropology, and psychiatry. Elise is a real thinker, a questioner, and someone who models the art of curiosity. What interests me most about Elise is that she has come from the wellness industry and now in her creative life is modeling and teaching others what it means to be truly well. Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the word wellness. You do these awesome Instagram and TikToks. By the way, congratulations on mastering TikTok. As a grown up, I'm like <laughs> terrified by it.
1: I don't know what I'm doing. So.
0: Well, (laughs) whatever you're doing, you're doing well, but you will bring us these words like the word normal and discuss the word normal, which is a really interesting one to me as a physician. What is normal? Nothing is normal, particularly right now. You'll bring us the word empowerment and break it down. I'd love to talk right now about the word wellness. You are someone who has worked in the wellness industry. I am someone whose goal as a physician is not just to help people with their cholesterol and their blood pressure and their thyroid disease. It's also to promote the more invisible, intangible, difficult to measure concept of well-being. Yet the medical industrial complex likes to think of patients as just the sum total of their lab results. And then people are 364 days of the year not knowing what the hell to do when they don't feel well. They're online looking up wellness tricks and memes and wondering what the hell they're doing. So what is the word wellness mean to you? And what do you think it means to the masses?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when wellness first emerged, and obviously it's an old word, but thinking about it in the context of, as you mentioned, a whole industry devoted to wellness now, I think at its inception, it was a solution to this idea of healthcare, or that you would only attend to what's happening in your body at your annual physical. And for so many women who have felt long ignored by medicine. I mean, we are more complex and our hormones are more complex. We go through more phases in our lives. And so many women have been lost in that gap, lost in that chasm, right? On that spectrum of, I don't feel well, I don't feel well, well, there's nothing clinically wrong with you, you're fine, until suddenly you have an autoimmune disease or you're not fine. So I think that has unfortunately been the legacy of medicine as it's been practiced in the West, right? You're not well, you're fine until you have an actual diagnosis. There's a code to submit to insurance. You said it. Yeah. My dad's a pulmonologist. My mom's a nurse. I grew up spending every day after school at my dad's office. And my mom worked at my dad's office as well. So that was the conversation discussing diagnoses, discussing healthcare, insurance, which has always been fraught and difficult. And I went to college and I, similar to you, fine arts and English... And I didn't want to go to medical school because I have no affinity for science or organic chemistry. It just felt not my calling. But I am very interested in healing. And I am very interested in what I perceive to be this multifactorial, intuitive understanding of what's happening with people and the way that the body is this Venn diagram for the world and all of these things collide in our bodies. It's how we're interpreting, experiencing our lives. The medical view, the health view is one sliver of that. It's an important part, but it's certainly not the whole picture. And so I think wellness is an important step. I do think we're ready for the next evolution of it. And I think like all things culturally, these ideas get picked up, then they become marketing, then they become just another thing by which we're being extolled to do things so that we can be better, et cetera. So I think we're ready for the next step in wellness, but it is a step closer to where we need to be.
0: I agree with you on so many fronts. I first of all agree with you that the wellness industry is largely well-intended and was born out of the absence of the medical industry's ability to see the whole person. And modern medicine is, is really failing so many people because, as you and I both know, health is not just about our lab results and our colonoscopy. It's about having agency. It's about having the tools and information and guidance we need to live in the world every day, not just win the appointment of your physical at the annual checkup. You know, wellness to me is about the intersection of emotional, mental, physical, spiritual well-being. And I see the wellness industry sometimes taking people away from a healthy self-examination and instead towards supplements and vitamins and things that seem kind of quick fixy when actually people need to really look in the mirror and face hard truths about themselves. They need to look at their past. They need to look at their relationships. They need to look at boundaries. They need to look at how they manage stress, how they parent, how they care for themselves. And
1: as people, we have a very ancient tendency to seek exterior authority always and to continually give over that agency or sovereignty that is ours alone to own. And that's why I think it's this iterative process. And within the wellness industry, the things that it is supposedly pushing against continue to happen. But yet, This whole guruification, which can happen with Western medical doctors or has with priests, with professors, this like, you tell me how to be. I'm just going to give you all the authority to tell me how to be. It continues to happen regardless of the structure until we will recognize, I think, ultimately oh no, I'm the quarterback. This autonomy, this stays with me. And I think that's actually one of the things that we're running up against in medicine is that used to be that you'd go to your one doctor and this is maybe a stereotype, but that doctor would be like, no, 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 I'm the ultimate authority on you. I don't want other opinions, right? It's this like second opinion is offensive you are questioning my authority and my knowledge and it's created this whole paradigm which i think translates to wellness as well now we're seeing the same thing happen of like i have all the answers for you why would you ever need to go anywhere else and nobody has all the answers for any of us and we need a culture in which and i think that a lot of doctors are like this a culture where they're like i don't know i don't know it's okay to not know covid being a perfect example of like i don't know And we'll try and figure this out together. But I think doctors feel pressured, understandably, to deliver a diagnosis or to create something pat when it's really like there's no prize. Like You don't win your physical. There's no moment when you're like, I'm done. I've achieved perfect health, right? Like this is an ongoing (laughs) process. I hit my goal weight and forever I will stay.
0: It's a process. And uh, I think it's human nature to crave certainty, especially in the stressful, uncertain world we live in. But the problem is that when patients' stories live in their bodies, when our past live in our muscles, our joints, our connective tissues, and then when our brains are the hub of everything we've experienced in our past, our, our genetics and our kind of emotional health, It's really impossible for anyone to be an expert about you other than you. You know you better than I know you, for sure. The moment where someone decides for themselves that they're going to make a major change, it takes a bit of vulnerability because people don't like change. People don't like modifying their behaviors, even if the behavior they know is self-sabotaging. Because we're comfortable with our discomfort. We know it. We're familiar with it. Making change is hard, and it requires a heavy dose of vulnerability, which is painful.
1: Yeah. And this might be too spiritually out there, but I would argue that we pick our problems, that we do this over and over and over again, and that we are working on things that we need to learn in order to grow and get bigger. We have signed up for something that might seem (laughs) incredibly odd, but it's because it's pushing us. It is sending us out of the cave into the uncertainty, and it is painful, and it is hard, and yet... I've experienced some hard things. I have experienced loss, etc. And as we know, there's a paradox to all loss. Like you can look at something and say, I wish that would never have happened. And that was, in some ways, the best thing that ever happened to me for me. I mean, that's hard. It's hard to get to that place. And yet... I think that that's life. You're forged in those fires and you come out the other side and you're like, I wouldn't want to be any different. And I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for that particular wasteland that I just walk through.
0: And I don't know if you want to talk about the wasteland. My sort of forte is talking about the wastelands and like going there. Because I think it's helpful to be specific. I mean, I'm a kind of an open book. And if you're willing to, I mean, you have talked about having anxiety, you've talked about a relationship with food that was unhealthy and kind of punishing. What have you iterated on? And what is the thing that you have, the problems that you have picked, if you will? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. I'd say (laughs) yes, every
1: woman I think I know is disordered in some ways about maybe not perpetually disordered, but like you've either lived that or on the day to day, you're either in a place of restriction or permitting. And the way that we culturally think about food obviously contributes
0: to that. The way we talk about food, I've been good, I've been bad, and moralizing it. The idea of clean foods, dirty foods, that drives me up the wall. I'm like, if you have a liver and two kidneys, you're you're cleansing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm tall, I'm 5'10", and I am not a
1: small person. I come from massive Iowans. <laughs> I think, as a woman, being like, I take up a lot of space and I'm big and I'll never be small, I think that's difficult. And I think it's similarly difficult for men and the opposite.
0: Well, yeah, the number on the scale is just a metric. I mean, it matters, but what matters is really the context. It's just complex. It's about the inputs, the things you put in your body, and your ecosystem. And then it matters about your fitness and your genetics. And then, of course, the image of your own self in your body and then the way you treat your body. Weight is just a number. At the same time, you know, I, I do have worries about we've created this false dichotomy in the public conversation about weight that it's like. Either you're dieting or you're like a body positivity person. And actually, there's so much nuance. Well, body positivity is still telling people how to feel about their body, which is
1: complex. And this idea of like, well, your body is good or your body is bad. And then obviously, that being the overarching, overriding way that we visually judge other people and condemn them. It's so complicated.
0: Yeah, and people walk around with a lot of shame about their bodies at any size, but particularly people who live in a body that they feel is bigger or takes up more space than it should. You're right. We have to stop moralizing bodies and stop using the number on the scale as the end all be all. And when we pull back from it too, it's so odd, right?
1: Like, I think if we were aliens encountering ourselves, we would be like, this is an odd fixation that we spend so much of our energy on this. And I get that we're highly visual. That's a big input for us. But even that, like the way that we're codified or programmed to find certain things attractive versus other things, it's all very odd. You know, one of the things that I try to do is unhook from these stories and understand where they came from. That alone, sometimes that perspective taking can be helpful in sort of like, wait, I need to like understand why I actually care. And what is connected to this for me, where it's consuming so much of my energy? And can I let it go? Can I stop?
0: It's so true. It's like the stories that we tell ourselves. It's like the scripts we have in our heads about how you should feel, how you should be, how you should eat, how you should move in the world. It helps to kind of go back to like, who authored that story? Like If I wrote that story and it's written in pencil, I can actually erase it and revise it. And if someone else wrote that story, like maybe a parent made some comments when you were growing up and you think that story was written by a family member, then, well, wait a minute. That was like a, the script of a play that doesn't have to be acted out exactly the way that person wrote it. And so I think you're right. You go back to the roots of these stories that we have in our minds, these sort of narratives. What do you think it was for you, Elise, that helped you kind of have more control and agency over how you feel about your body and not weigh yourself, for example? Well, it's interesting you use the word control, because I think for me, it was
1: recognizing that that was the one way I was trying to control myself. And that actually, maybe I could just try to leave myself alone a little bit and let myself be. And I'm writing a book that comes out next summer that's about women and patriarchy and the seven deadly sins. Speaking of stories, whether you're raised in the Catholic tradition or not, the way that those have infiltrated culture and become these tenants of goodness by which women patrol ourselves and patrol each other. They're so baked in, they're invisible. It's like lifting a fishing net or that's what it was for me where I was like, oh my God, gluttony, greed, lust, envy, sloth, anger, pride, all things around which when you start to look at them, you recognize how many stories that aren't yours that you're holding on to and using to sort of prove your goodness prove your willingness to abide within this social structure men are conditioned for power women for goodness and again this is broad strokes and this primarily affects i think people who are extra close to the patriarchy so a lot of white women in particular of a certain class middle class etc i think it still shows up in the lives of all women but i think it's so pronounced for people like me, for example. And as I wrote this book and had to deal with all of these things in my life, I mean, it was hard, hard. With gluttony, I've never had a full-blown eating disorder. But I think going to boarding school, etc., eating disorders are so contagious, right? Because as soon as another woman or someone in your orbit is talking about the badness of their body, and you can objectively look at them and you're like, You look pretty good to me. If your body is bad, what does that say about my body, right? And I certainly ate in disordered ways, particularly in high school and college. I was depressed in college, but I would not eat and then just have ice cream. I did that for like a year not good. For me, that's where I was like, I need to get off the seesaw of like, I'm bad. So I need to be good. And I'm going to restrict because I permitted. And like, can I just actually in the moment start to be like, what do I want? And what am I hungry for? Am I hungry? Am I bored? And to demoralize food and to enjoy
0: it, actually, rather than just seeing it as like fuel. I think what so many women struggle with and men too, But what you're describing is this irony of food is actually it was for you controlling you or the thoughts and emotions around it were controlling you instead of you being in the driver's seat of your own thoughts and feelings. And it sounds like I mean, and certainly if you're in a restrictive state, then that drives down mood or can and then the low moods can then drive the wobbly relationship with food. And so this is what I see so many of my adolescent patients struggling with and it's easily masqueraded as well-being because we reward people who are healthy. It's good to be healthy. It's good to eat whole foods and it's good to, you know, avoid processed foods and sugars and simple starches, etc. But, you know, the sort of no-carb, restrictive keto world of dieting and constantly punishing our bodies is really not healthy. It's not sustainable and it's definitely not promoting well-being. Right.
1: You're achieving health on only one of those measures, quote unquote, by like denying other parts of yourself, like your mental or emotional (laughs) for the sake of eating in a very restrictive or regimented way
0: the fitness industry has taken off, which is good, right? Exercise is good for us. It's good to be outside in nature. I see you with your horses and I see you inhaling the mountain air and being outdoors and moving your body. The fitness industry is now like on the runways in the Paris Fashion Week. You know, it's like people are wearing sneakers and dresses and thank goodness because I can't wear heels to save my life anymore. But the point is that these are sort of woven into the fabric of our everyday lives, like the ideas of eating healthy and exercising, which is good. But then people don't often understand that the relationship with food or movement or their own bodies is more complex than they think it is.
1: Yeah. And as like a 42-year-old woman who's a little tired. I'm like, I just want to take long walks in the neighborhood and get my heart rate up a little bit. I don't need to kill myself in the gym. And so much of it is this desire to not change. And that was certainly a trigger for me after having my second and not being able to lose, quote unquote, the body weight. I just want to like go back and touch that wall and be unchanged by pregnancy. Like I just want to prove that I am the same person. And I'm not. And my body is not. And I'm sure with these adolescent and younger patients in your practice, like it's really weird to go through first puberty and then sort of that late teens, early 20s, where you suddenly gain a lot of weight, which people I think attribute only to college, but I think it's also like must be hormonal to just let it happen. I wish we lived in a culture that let women age and change. Change is an undeniable reality of life, and yet we sort of abide by this idea that our faces won't move, that our bodies won't shift. As women know, your body it becomes unrecognizable to you in the various forms. And yet we resist this. I don't want to be 20. I certainly don't emotionally want to be <laughs> the same as I was when I was 20. And yet there's this idea that if my body doesn't look like it did before I had children, that's a bad thing. Whereas I'm trying to let myself embrace the fact that I've actually lived.
0: I love it. The language that I personally want to work on, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, is so the word mental health. Mental health is having a moment. It's great. Hashtag mental health matters is trending. If you haven't had to reckon with your mental health before, you probably had to during the pandemic. The thing I think people don't understand well enough is that there's an ocean of gray between mental health and mental illness. And that there's this false dichotomy where people think that you're either mentally healthy or mentally ill, when in actuality, we all have mental health. We all have anxieties. We all have moods. We all have relationships to food, each other. We all manage stress in different ways. We all experience loss and grief in our lives. The question isn't, do you have mental health or are you mentally ill? It's where are you on the continuum? And what tools do you have to manage the everyday mental health that we have And how can I as your physician or you yourself help you manage your everyday anxiety, your moods, your relationship to alcohol, et cetera, because mental health is health and mental health is universal. The language I'm trying to help patients have is not like, oh, I don't need therapy because I don't have mental illness is like, well, where are you on the continuum and how could you be better and how could you feel better in your own body and mind?
1: Yeah, it's like. Obviously, a spectrum. And I think the spectrum is really important for destigmatizing those extremes, right? Like bipolar is an extreme expression of something that we all experience and can relate to moments of feeling really energetic and happy and full of energy, and moments of really needing a bed day. And then you have that just like stretched. And then our mental health and anxiety, as you said, it affects our physical health and vice versa. Right. So like you can also have anxiety because you've just had way too much coffee and maybe like you had a donut, whatever it is, like you're just full of sugar and caffeine and you're agitated. Right. You're literally physically vibrating and shaky. My friend, Ellen Vora, uh, is a physician, a psychiatrist. She talks about true anxiety versus false anxiety, that true existential anxiety that is like anchored to very valid reasons that you mentioned. And then the false anxiety, which can, in her experience, be related to diet or just like biochemical quirks, but where you're just anxious, but it's not attached to anything. It's not particularly helpful showing you things that you need to change in your life. It's ruminative. It's rutted. But I think that we're at the very beginning of understanding how all of these systems interact. And I had an accident this summer. I fell off a horse, broke my neck in two places, my C2.
0: I saw that. You were like doing your Instagram post with your neck brace. And like, tell me about the neck injury. That was just horrendous, it looked like. Well,
1: the irony, of course, is that like, it wasn't. It's one of those accidents where it can go one of two ways, right? Like you're either Christopher Reeve, or you are fine. So I am fine. I'm a walking miracle. Really interesting experience on multiple levels, both in something that's very, quote unquote, bad happening, but being like, I actually fine. I wore a brace for a month. I was able to go back out and ride horses again, which felt important to me. But what's interesting about the accident is that the primary symptom has been in my gut. I have something called microscopic colitis, which isn't a big deal. In my mind, I'm like, clearly the physical stress or the emotional stress of falling off a horse and breaking my neck and having a concussion inflamed my gut. So there's that. And then there is the emotional sort of spiritual part of that experience where I've always had neck issues, although now this happened on the other side. But I'm like, I feel like it was some sort of karmic event that I not only survived, but survived sort of unscarred. And then I broke some sort of old pattern and now I'm digesting it. That's what it feels like to me on like a psycho-spiritual
0: level. I mean, that to me is wellness right there, Elise, is this sort of insight and curiosity about your bodily systems. And then like bonus points for thinking that your neck fracture is like the universe's way of being like, snap out of it.
1: I feel like I must have been burned at the stake or something as a witch and I'm not going to be silenced by this lifetime and that's in the past. And then as someone who has always struggled to go to the bathroom, sorry, this is TMI probably, but always like Metamucil and now to have sort of the opposite problem and speaking to this spiritual mentor and she was like, I think you're just finally letting stuff go. Like it's after a lifetime of like being in control. You break your neck and now you're just like, I'm going to just process and let everything go.
0: I love it. You're describing what a lot of people experience you know, before this accident in your younger years as like this sort of self-regulation as virtue and control as the goal. And now... Maybe it's through having kids. Maybe it's through leaving your corporate job. Maybe it's through this neck accident. You're kind of experimenting with less self-regulation, which ironically puts you back in control of how you feel. It gives you a little more space to think about it. It also gives you diarrhea.
1: Well, right. But to be like, oh, wow, not only have I like never really used public restrooms, again, Like going back to this idea of control, I'm going to have to like know where all the public restrooms are when I leave my house. It's been a really interesting... <laughs> Two months of, oh, this is happening and I can't control it, to your point. And so I'm going to have to learn how to let go. And you're just observing it and letting it go. Yeah, just letting go. And then just recognizing like I might not get a tidy medical answer, but I also recognize that this is happening on a lot of different levels or layers within my body and that it doesn't invalidate any one of them.
0: If you were my patient and you came into my office and said, you know, I'm having loose stool and I've had lots of constipation and I don't know what's going on, I would have done the same thing that your doctor did, rule out C. diff. And then you'd ask the patient, tell me about how your diet has changed. Maybe your diet changed since you broke your neck. Maybe you're drinking more caffeine to stay awake. Maybe you're, you know, having more dairy or whatever. And then if none of those things are right, I would definitely not tell them to go on the internet and look up the myriad sort of pseudoscientific tests you can order over the counter or like food allergy kits. Because at the end of the day, what's much more common, I mean, certainly you can have a food allergy But what's much more common, if it's not C. diff, if it's not Giardia, and it's not too much caffeine making you have diarrhea, it's often stress living in our body. Examining those phenomena can be the sort of path to healing. In your case, it was microscopic colitis, but stress still informs microscopic colitis in some ways. Yeah. It's just interesting
1: to me. Like, I just have curiosity about this is my body, like doing its thing. And it was an excuse to get a colonoscopy early because I'm 42, but everyone needs one when they're
0: 45. 45 is the new goalpost. So tell me about this new path you've taken. Podcasting, sharing your infinite knowledge about so many different subjects, your fascination about words, and then you're writing your own book. How does that fit into your concept of wellness and well-being in your own life?
1: I mean, I think that the word I like, Now, at least for myself and the pursuit for me has been wholeness because it's self-contained, it is deeply personal to each person. The creation myth of Kabbalah is that like there was a shattering and the vessel couldn't hold the light and it shattered or the vessels, and that each person is like part of this mosaic of God's face, or we each are shattered by life and by losses. And then sort of our job is to go and like pick those little bits of light or those parts back up and bring them back into the whole. So I think of it as this quest for wholeness or to really understand who we are and our deepest, most essential selves when we start to strip off all this cultural programming and all these stories and to really let the self come up or emerge So that's where I'm most interested in. The name of my podcast is Pulling the Thread, which I chose for very specific reasons, both this idea of starting to unravel stories and see what's underneath them while also sort of putting together new ones or bringing together things that might seem disparate but are part of a system that allow us to make sense of our lives. Like that's what's very interesting to me. This is work that I think we all do for ourselves, whether we recognize it or not. But we're looking, we're like gathering things into our own nets, right? Like moments of resonance. And that's been the most powerful part of my career. Hasn't been helping to shift culture, lead change, or it's this small moments, like letters from people who are like, you said this one thing or this, you had someone on and they said this and it just completely changed my perspective on my mother or like I suddenly saw it, like I saw this pattern that I'm playing out in all these relationships. So that's what I think is the most interesting work isn't doing that for other people, but modeling what it is to do that and finding really interesting people and talking to them and extracting their wisdom so that people can take what's resonant and put it into their own lives. And then on a a different level, pulling apart these cultural stories and mythologies so that we can take what serves and evolve it and use it and let a lot of this stuff go.
0: It makes so much sense. I mean, it sounds very intuitive to you and it sounds very natural and you're like a naturally spiritual person. And I mean, you're really a philosopher. I mean, you would have been a great doctor, but it's what to me doctoring should be and what doctors I think go into medicine to do is to give people permission to be human, to explore their bodies and minds, to then bring to the world and to their own health, like, what they envision as their concept of health and well-being. Like, I'm here to tell you about cholesterol and blood pressure, but that's not the whole definition of health. That's modern medicine's definition of health, but health is really that sort of intersection of the mental, physical, spiritual self. Well, I think
1: doctoring is a spiritual practice. And I think there are very few people who we go to who we expect to see in our fullness and to really look at us and understand us. Not that many doctors really step into that responsibility. There are myriad factors for that, right? And our broken healthcare system visits are 15 minutes long. But there is something about attending to the whole person that requires that spiritual component and... To think that they're separate that spirituality can't contain science that biology and the ineffable or the unknown or the energetic are mutually exclusive is such a loss for all of us it's all part of the same system and it's not either or i hate how secularism and science deny spirituality or that somehow those can't all exist in the same person
0: What are you working on vis-a-vis your own kind of health and wholeness, even like your everyday like practices or maybe every week practices to maintain like health and also to try to be more whole? What do you do?
1: It's funny. After like a lifetime of doing things, I'm trying to just be more in the moment in terms of I'd like to go for a walk right now, a little less regimented and a little less prescriptive and planned about what I do. I try to always make space to be quiet because I have so many things going on in my head. And sometimes I feel like an overfull sponge and I read a lot and I'm interviewing people and I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. I live in a very amazing house, but it's tiny and there are four of us. So I have a sauna that's outside of my bedroom and it's almost just like this extra room and I turn it on. Sometimes I don't turn it up very hot, but I just like to go in there for 30 minutes And not think, honestly.
0: And probably not tell anybody where you are.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes my son likes to come in there with me, which defeats the purpose, but it's very cute. But I just like to empty. I just mentally empty myself. And then I'm trying to cook more meals because I actually enjoy it. And I know that's not very exciting. I get therapy every week. I love therapy. I feel like it makes me a better person. My mom is like one of those people who thinks therapy is self-involved. I'm like, no, on the contrary. It's another form of emptying for me. Like I can get everything out so that I can be more available to my kids.
0: I think that's so healthy. I hear this all the time from patients when I suggest therapy They're like, well, that seems self-indulgent. It's a luxury. I mean, you know, for some people it is because it's not always covered by insurance. But just like you would go to the physical therapist to work on your strength after your neck fracture, you'd also do psychotherapy to work on the mental muscles. It's like going to the brain trainer.
1: Yeah. And it's just important. I know every week that I have a container, that I have a place to take things and put things that I need help processing or, you know, and he calls me out on stuff. And he's a little bit of a creative coach, even though that's not the idea. But like, he's been very helpful thinking about where I am today and helping me, calling me out on things. Like I was talking about a project and I was like, I just don't know if I want to do this. And he was like, I'm going to just offer back to you that we've been talking about this for like a year. (laughs) That's the continual reframe. I don't know if I want to do this. And yet we're still here. So even those moments of reflection, of holding me accountable in that way, I find so healthy.
0: It's so healthy. It's like ambivalence for a year about the ambivalence is probably a sign. A
1: sign, yes. And like he is really good at simultaneously allowing that and being patient while also sort of holding up a mirror for me. That's honestly where I think that I'm at, doing fewer things, trying to be less to people in some ways, just recognizing I like working by myself and I like being sort of a quote unquote individual contributor. And there's probably work I need to do there in terms of accepting help and support, all those things. But I really like being more insular. And, you know, podcasting is funny. It's like simultaneously you're broadcasting your conversations to people. It's very public, but it's like the most insular. It feels very intimate and private and meditative, not like hosting a call in radio show, you know?
0: Yes. If you were my patient, I would say, oh my gosh, here you are. We've checked your labs at your physical. You're working on cooking and nutrition, which is so good and healthy and also meditative. And then your body mechanics are improving because you've got your neck healed. You're moving intuitively like you're walking when you want to walk. You're not putting yourself on this rigid schedule and punishing your body and like cracking the whip every day at 5 a.m. to go up for the run that you then say you did to yourself to feel like you're good. And then you have insight about all of that, and that's probably helping with anxiety and then ultimately with creativity, and then your creativity and your intuitive pursuit of all the things you're doing is sort of part of this wellness package. But Elise, thank you for sharing with me your story, your different complex components, and for modeling in your work, this notion of wholeness, and you kind of exude warmth and relatability, which I think people are really drawn to. And I think if you can model kind of the curiosity you have and then teach us all the knowledge you have about words and etymology and bring experts to the forefront who are grappling with some of the most complex subjects in our modern world, I think that that is such a value add. It's hard to measure it. It's so valuable. That's why you have such a following. Oh, thank you. No, I
1: mean, I try and I try to use my own curiosity and the fact that like you, I think of myself as a perpetual student and my mantra is I don't know and I'm trying to understand. But my understanding, of course, is flawed and limited, but that it's more interesting to sort of, again, going to this idea of spectrums. It's more interesting to sort of operate In this, like, I'm just evolving and learning and trying to learn and share rather than feeling like, oh, I'm fixed or I know and I'm going to tell you what I know. My hope is always to sort of show my work, (laughs) but to bring people in on this process because it is a weird time to be alive and it's scary and it's hard and there's a lot coming at all of us and we're all supposed to be perfect in our goodness as women, really. I try to let go of that, not so I can be quote unquote bad, but that I can be human and let that humanness move me
0: forward. Well, you're giving a lot of other people, whether you know it or not, permission to be human and to laugh at themselves. And that humility you have and the authenticity you have is really a gift. So thank you so much for sharing a slice of yourself with me today. And I look forward to seeing what other words and people you share with us on your show and in your social media posts. And I can't wait to see what's next. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and I am very excited about your book. I am too. Now it just has to get written. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.